Thank you, Wendy. Keep your Bibles open. We are going to work through chapters 12, 13 and 14. But as Ken said, we're going to read along as we go. Let me pray for us as we spend some time in God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this vision that you gave John. And we ask today that you would use it in our lives to show us the reality of the world that we live in, such that we might have hope and endurance in the midst of suffering, that we might have wisdom as we prepare for times of difficulty, and that we might have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have the victory and your kingdom, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Why do God's people suffer? In conversations the last few weeks, I've spoken with people who are going through some times of severe depression and anxiety. I've spoken with people who are battling persistent loneliness, those for whom death has brought great grief, people who are in the middle of fights and relationship breakdowns, people who have been persecuted at work or whose marriages are in trouble or have parenting worries, quite serious ones. Why do God's people suffer? In fact, even if we just want to stop and put suffering into perspective for a moment, I mean, our woes are pretty bad when they're your own, but really we have it easy. I mean, if you lived in Nigeria, India, North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Syria, Russia, Colombia, Eritrea, China, I mean, I'll keep going for a while if you want, but I figured... That gives us a sense. If you lived in any one of those countries today, simply for the fact of being a Christian, you might well live with the very imminent prospect of being killed, kidnapped, arrested, had your livelihood taken away from you, your family removed. Why do God's people suffer? According to Open Doors, last year there were roughly 3,000 Christians killed around the globe just for being Christian. Okay, This isn't Christians that got killed incidentally, they were killed because of their faith. Another 3,500 who were arrested because of it. Nearly 10,000 churches and Christian buildings that were destroyed. Why do God's people suffer? Shouldn't, shouldn't we... I mean, hasn't God won? <laughs> Isn't that what we've been saying for the last 11 chapters of Revelation now? The Lamb on the throne, the Ancient of Days with all power? Doesn't he care? What is he doing? Now, the Bible's answer to that question is a complex one. That is, there are lots of different parts to it. And this morning, we're going to look at just one. One of the reasons why God's people suffer. Namely, because Satan is at work. This is the reality that we're going to see over these three chapters. That Satan has been defeated in heaven already by the ascended Jesus. And so what he has left is to roam the earth in his fury. Because he knows that his time is short. That's the reality, but that's not the point. The point of what we're going to look, like, look at is that even in the middle of that, God is still at work. God's people still belong to him. God is still saving and providing for those who belong to Jesus. And I want one of three things to happen today. I hope that if you are currently in the midst of these times, you, you identify with a description of suffering. I hope that today will give you hope. That's my aim. Hope to endure to hold firm to Jesus. But maybe then, secondly, you aren't currently going through tough times. Life's okay. You're doing all right. Then what I want this morning to do is to give you strength and wisdom to prepare for what lies ahead. It will come. And thirdly, if you yet find that you haven't yet trusted in Jesus, I want to give you a reason to do it. Right, that's what I'm aiming to do this morning. Uh, now, as I said, we're going to work through chapter by chapter, and we're going to work, first of all, through chapter 12. As we see that reality, Satan defeated by the ascended Jesus, now on earth, roaming in his fury as he knows that his time is short, but God saving and providing for his people. Okay, firstly, what we see is two signs, chapter 12. Now, I'm going to read through less of the chapters than I normally would for the sake of time. Now, I hope that you have been reading ahead. 
we're going to be doing pretty big chunks of Revelation from here through to the end. So you really will benefit from reading ahead. All right, chapter 12, John sees two signs. The first sign, chapter 12 and verse 1, a great and wondrous sign, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, a crown of 12 stars, pregnant, about to give birth. And of course, like we've done all the way through Revelation so far, the first thing that we want to know is, who is it? Tell me what this picture is about. Help me to understand it, David. Give me the details. And again, as always, it's a little bit murky. See, Revelation... A bit like poetry is supposed to make us think. It gives you pictures that make you think of other pictures that remind you of other things. The pictures in Revelation aren't supposed to just fire our imagination so that we make up stuff. It's supposed to remind us of other pictures in the Bible. I mean, what about this one? Can anyone think of another event in the Bible that included a picture of the sun and the moon and 12 stars? Have we come across that before? Joseph! Oh, very good. Excellent. At eight o'clock, Joe had to answer them all, right? Well done, you guys, right? Joseph. Joseph has a dream. In his dream, he sees mom, dad, and his 12 brothers bowing down before him. So is the woman Joseph. Well, that's a bit weird, isn't it? But maybe if, if, if we broaden it a little bit, let's just say it's Israel. That could work. That kind of works. Israel, the sun, the moon, the 12 stars, the patriarchs gives birth to the Messiah. We, we will see that the child is Jesus. There's no doubt about that identity. But see, there are other pictures interwoven here. Can you think of an example of a woman who gives birth to a child in slightly unusual circumstances in the Bible? Right, okay, hang on. So, so let's go with the, the, the unusual one at the back. We had Hannah, right? Anyone remember Hannah's story? Comes to the temple to pray. Priest thinks she's drunk because she's babbling. No, I'm just weeping to the Lord. And he gives her a son, Samuel, one of the great prophets. Right, someone said Mary. Okay, pick the easy one, why don't you, right? Of course, a baby born in unusual circumstances. In fact, baby who happens to be the same baby as in this passage, so clearly we're supposed to think of her. Sarah, very good. What's the other famous one? There are two really, really famous ones, the two most famous of all. The most famous, Mary. The second one, not far off it. What's the other really famous one? Eve. Eve. Yeah, you were here this morning, Tanya. It doesn't count, right? (laughs) Eight o'clock. I mean, woman who gives birth to a child in the midst of conflict with the serpent. Do you remember Genesis chapter 3, right? As God promises the woman, you will give birth to a child, the serpent, right? He will crush his head, he will strike his heel. So is it Eve? Could it be the church, the New Testament equivalent of Israel, as we move God's people out of the old covenant and into the new, giving birth to the Messiah and then... Well, I'm going to suggest that it's God's people as a, as a, as a kind of umbrella term. Maybe, maybe it's a bit weasel of me, but it includes all of those pictures. We're supposed to see all of those pictures, but we're going to see that there's more to it than just a single person. It can't just be Eve or Mary because it's a people and it's a people that endures, that is still persecuted by the dragon. Well, that's the first sign. John sees a second sign in verse 3. Another sign appeared, an enormous red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on his head. Right here, here is a picture of a being of immense power and authority. He has all the things that go with power, the crowns, the horns, the heads, the numbers 10 and 7, complete, perfect. He is powerful. But thankfully, this one is identified for us. There aren't very many at all in Revelation that are very clearly and explicitly identified. The dragon is. Which, by the way, goes to show that John is able to identify them if he wants to. So the ambiguous ones, it's okay. It's good that they're ambiguous. Come down to verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. And this one, the dragon, the second sign, is identified for us. It is clearly Satan. And in fact, he's not only identified, but he is described for us. What is it that he does? He deceives as he leads the world astray. And he accuses, we will see in verse 10. See, this is the one who was waiting This is the drama ready to unfold. There is a woman who is bringing forth a child and the dragon is waiting, ready to devour. A conflict on a very small scale. You could say very intimate, very immediate. It's like we're in the maternity ward right now. 
with a dragon. <clears throat> it's a bit squished, okay? It's just... What happens? Come down to verse 5. Dragon's ready to eat. Child is being born. Verse 5, woman, she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. What picture is that one? What picture does that remind you of? Psalm 2, very good. Right, this was like the song of Israel. It's like if we were singing psalms, we would sing that one every single week. The king who is going to come and rule the nations with an iron scepter who will crush them like pottery. God's king who nobody can oppose. Well, that's what happens. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter and her child will snatch up to God into his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,200 Slightly anticlimactic, wasn't it? The dragon's there, going to eat a baby. And you think, big, whopping, great, powerful, red, warlike dragon. You can eat a baby. That's a bit easy, right? Gulp, swallow, we're done. But there's not even a fight. There's not even a battle. This isn't a contest. The baby is placed on his throne. Now, have you learned a gospel presentation? Have you, have you learned a summary of the gospel? I learned two ways to live a few years ago. It's a very helpful uh, summary, you, you can tell somebody the entire basics of the Christian message in under two minutes. It's a good one. If you haven't, go and learn one. They're, they're, very, they're very useful to have up your sleeve and for your own sake. I reckon this one has to be the shortest possible summary of the gospel. You ready? A baby was born and went to heaven. That was it. You're like, hang on a second, what about grew up and taught stuff and did miracles and died on the cross shouldn't that be in there resurrected gave his people a message and authority and a commission wet no the king is born the king is on his throne and the dragon <laughs> what dragon that's the outcome of that battle victory is his rule is his the dragon has no power. But notice what happens to the woman in verse 6, right? As she fled into the desert, ran to the wilderness, to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for three and a half years, 1260 days. It's another Bible picture, right? Can you think of an example? Where is there a story of God's people going into the wilderness and being provided for? What do you reckon? Sorry, Exodus, right? You went the easy one first. Very good. Right, God's people coming out of Egypt, off into the wilderness where God gives them food. God gives them water. God leads them. Yeah, what else? What else does it happen? Sorry? Mary? Yeah, well, I guess so. When Jesus is born, they flee. That's not quite wilderness. They go to Egypt, right? They had civilization in Egypt. We'll skip by that one. Where else? Hagar. Wow, that's a good one. Yes. Hagar, Abraham's concubine, the mother of Ishmael, goes into the wilderness to die. And God says, no, I'll look after you. That's a brilliant one. Good work, Abigail. Anymore? Yeah, Robert. That's the one your sister just said. Yeah, oh, you're on it too. That was, that was Hagar. Yeah, that's true. So when he's going to sacrifice Isaac, God provides for him in the wilderness as well. I mean, it's there the whole way through. Right? you come to Elijah, Elijah does the same thing. The prophets of Israel are being killed. He goes into the wilderness for a couple of years and God provides for him. And what have we got over here? There's a really famous one. Very good, Rowan. Jesus, right? Jesus goes into the wilderness and God provides for him. It's a picture that time and time and time again... See, we think of wilderness as the place where you go to be, and you're alone, where there is no provision, where there is no care. We talk about that. Oh, man, I'm, I'm, in a really, I'm, just, I'm in the wilderness right now. I'm lost. Whereas in the Bible, here are God's people being cared for, a place prepared for her by God, taken care of for three and a half years, a time cut short. It won't last forever. All right, let's keep going. The second thing that happens then is there is a war in heaven. 
By the way, each chapter I'm going to say less. So chapter 12, we're going to go good. Chapter 13 is going to be a bit shorter. Chapter 14, we're just going to make two quick points out of. The woman, what happens next is war in heaven. And again, as we're reading about this war between Michael and his angels, and they fight against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon's not strong enough, and they get cast out of heaven, Satan, and poof, down to earth, and his angels with him. And we're all sitting there thinking, hang on a second, okay, who are they? When did it happen? And how does this have anything to do with verses 1 to 6? Those were the questions you thought of, weren't they? Uh, now, of course, you will have noticed as we read through that verses 6 and 14 are basically the same. I'll show you in a minute. I think what's happening here is, as Joe pointed out for us, the action replay. We're looking at the same events. Whereas the last time we were in the maternity ward, we were looking at the extreme close-up. Now it's the blimp view. Now we've zoomed right out. See, the end of both of these events, verse 6, the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God. Come down to verse 14, the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time. Right? Again, one plus two plus a half, three and a half, the three and a half years, a time cut short. When is this happening? Well, it's hard to tell, isn't it? We like to think that maybe it's before creation, when Satan was somehow cast out of heaven before it all happened, because by the time you get to Genesis 3, Satan's there already. Is that when it happened? Or is it the cross when the victory is won and Satan is disarmed and death is done away with? Is it in the ascension, as we see in the previous one, when Jesus sits on his throne and casts... You know what? We don't know. That's okay. Who is it? Well, Michael and his angels, right? The only three mentions to Michael in the whole Bible. Daniel chapter 10, Daniel chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12. That's it. He's, a, he's, a, he's an angel. He's a protector of God's people. He's a prince. And somehow he fought against Satan. But here's, here's the point I want to make. It's so easy to get lost in the details. It's so easy to try and go down the rabbit hole and the angel and the dragon and Michael and the timing and how could it be this... And you're so caught up in the brush stroke that you forget to stand back and see the water lilies. See the big picture. See what it is that you are supposed to see. See, what is it that we are seeing in this battle? Well, we are seeing the accuser, the deceiver, who once stood before God to accuse God's people. I mean, that was Satan's job. That, that one's one of yours? Really? You, you sure, God? Are we talking about the same David Blouse? I mean, that, that one's yours? Do you know what he's done? <laughs> do, you, do you know what he's thought? I mean, Satan doesn't even have to make stuff up at that point, right? He just tells the truth and it's enough. He can accuse me of all sorts of things before God and they'd be true. That was his job. For each one of you, right? No, he's not one of yours. Don't be silly, God. And what happened? Look at verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, as they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. See, all of Satan's accusations all of a sudden mean nothing. Because Satan stands there and he says, Hey, God, did you see that one? Did you see what David just did? Did you, did you see that? That was a bad one. And God goes, what are, you, what are you talking about? All I can see is Jesus' blood. All I can see is righteousness, perfection. All I can see is what my son paid for. And the accuser has nothing to accuse of. Powerless. Empty. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God have come in the blood of the Lamb. And so as Satan's power has been removed, cast out of heaven, there's only one thing left for him to do. And that's just flip the table. You know the saying? You're playing a board game? Sword loser? If I can't play. You ever been in those situations? You're kind of going through something where you know you can't win. 
Now, for me, that happens most often in board games, okay, in those scenarios, but I can see a much more serious one. You might have been in, in, a, in a fight, in a relationship sometime, in a disagreement, and you can see that there is no way out. You, you can't win it. The other person's in the right, you're in the wrong. And what happens? Well, so often the person in that situation, in the board game or in whatever other situation, just says, well, if I can't win, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to do everything I can to harm you. Now, in board games, it can be annoying, maybe funny. In life, it's horrible. Satan's got nothing left. He cannot win. It is impossible for him to do so. His lies are exposed by the truth of Christ. His accusations covered over by his blood. All he has left to do is say, well, in that case, I'm going down to earth and I'm going to destroy as much as I can. I'm going to do everything in my power. See, his purpose, why do God's people suffer? You want to come back to that question? Why do God's people suffer? Because Satan is a sore loser. That's why. Because he's going to do everything in his power to try and tempt you away from the Lord Jesus Christ, to try and crush you and wear you down that you might deny him. See, the testimony, that was what held them firm, the word of testimony. Jesus' blood is what covers my righteousness, my, my sin, that I might be righteous. And Satan wants you to give up on that above all else. That you might love yourself such that you will be tempted or you will be crushed. That's all he has left to try. But did you notice what happened to the woman? She fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of. See, here is a truth that is oh so powerful. Even in the bleakest wilderness, you are not alone. Even in the darkest grief, the hardest trial, God wins. God wins. The victory is his. The power is his. The kingdom that will come is his. And he doesn't leave his people alone. Oh no, they receive that victory too. A hope that is found only in Jesus. Even as, if you come over to verse 17, come right to the end. As the dragon and rage at the woman went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Hold. Whatever it is that you're going through right now, whatever it is that's going to come, hold. There is nothing else worth it. Even lose your life if you must. Lose your freedom. Lose your comfort. Lose your health. Lose your family. Lose your dreams. But hold the testimony of Jesus. But if Satan is at work in our world, how? What is it that he's doing? Let's read chapter 13. Wendy, you're right to read chapter 13 for us. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw the beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but he had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemes and the exercise his authority for 22 months. 
He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. He was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he had given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honour to the beast who had wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it would speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Thank you, Wendy. Okay, don't get distracted by the 666. We will come to it, okay? You're all like, what's that about? How would you expect Satan to work? I mean, we've said Satan is done in heaven, he's on earth, he's roaming in his fury, and he's trying to tempt God's people, crush God's people. How would you expect him to work? Uh, has anyone watched The Exorcist? Would you admit to watching it? Oh, no, I haven't watched it myself. I've heard of the movie, and it's one of the greatest horror films ever made. I don't like scary movies, so I won't watch it. But I, I saw something this week that I, I couldn't believe. Did you know that it wasn't real? That, that they used like props, and they made the beds shake, and people shudder, and Wow! Yeah, it's dumb, isn't it? I mean, but isn't that how we would expect Satan to work? He's going to go around possessing people. That's it, right? We're going to have demonic encounters. He's going to work through the occult or rock music, whichever. Like, this is just... Do you remember the description of Satan? The deceiver. He's not going to do anything so obvious, so blatant as that. Chapter 13 shows us a picture of at least two of the ways that Satan operates. Two beasts that we are introduced to. Now, I'm going to have a little crack at kind of identifying them, despite everything that we've been doing about not identifying people. But we're going to do it in broad terms rather than specific terms. See, the first beast seems to work well with saying that it is world governments, those in power, those in authority. See, he's a picture again of one who is very powerful. The beast coming out of the sea in verse 1, ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns. Again, he, he is somebody with great power, with a blasphemous name, trying to put himself into God's place. He has one who, if you look down at verse 3, one of the heads seemed to have a fatal wound, but a fatal wound that had been healed, which is a bit of a contradiction. right? Is it a fatal wound, then you can't heal it. Has it been healed, then it's not a fatal wound. Which is it? But I guess the picture is of one who seemingly can't die. You can deliver a fatal wound to this one and it will continue on. Power will continue. Seemingly unbeatable. Come down and look at verse 7. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. He was given authority of every tribe, people, language, nation... All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. Well, all whose names have not been written in the book of life. Right, and so people will say back up in verse 4, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Now look, some people try to work out an individual and they go back through history and, oh, it has to be Attila the Hun or Napoleon Bonaparte or and you kind of, you try. 
This seems to be a picture of the order in the world that the dragon uses deceptively to get people to worship the dragon through a show of strength. Now, the Bible has a very ambivalent view on government. So on the one hand, it is extremely positive at times. You can go read Romans 13 or 1 Peter chapter 2, right? Submit to the governing authorities. They are God's instrument. If you do good, won't you be rewarded? If you do wrong, won't you be punished? God uses the government instituted by him for good. But on the other hand, there are plenty of times in the Bible where God will speak well, not so well of government, right? Psalm 146, don't put your trust in princes. You could go and read the whole story of Daniel, which is very anti-government, if I can put it that way. I mean, specifically anti-Babylon, perhaps. Or Revelation chapter 13, don't trust the government. No, hang on, there's more to that sentence. Don't trust the government to bring in God's kingdom. That's what I meant to say, right? By all means, trust the government. Don't trust the government to bring in God's kingdom. That is not what they will do. Princes and rulers and kings will not bring about God's kingdom. Don't get so lost in politics thinking that you are somehow doing God's work. On the contrary, what we ought to expect is that government rulers will oppress God's people. For they are agents of Satan. Now don't get me wrong, okay? I'm not saying ScoMo is a Satanist. I'm not saying that the Labour Party holds seances before their meetings or they go and sacrifice a goat, right? Or that the Liberals are using Ouija boards to dictate policy. I'm not saying things like that. Maybe they are, but I'm not saying they do. But the point is, even without knowing that they operate under Satan, this is how governments work. Governments want you to conform. That's how they work. We set what is the norm and you must conform to our norm or we will make you suffer. Right? In our country, you speed, you get a fine. What's happening? The government is making you conform to the way they want you to be. Some things really don't matter. The government doesn't want you to speed. Well, don't speed. That's up to them. Who cares? But there will inevitably be places where the government will overstep the bounds and so Daniel, right, as they come and say to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, you must bow down and worship this idol. Conform or you will suffer. Worship the beast who in turn gives his worship to Satan or you will be punished. And I think in our culture, our government is shaped by our culture. It kind of is that way by definition, right? It's a democracy. The people will shape the government in some way or other and our culture is heading more and more and more away from christianity the fact that we have had peace that we haven't been persecuted for being christians is a glitch it is unusual both in history and in geography it's unusual in the history of the world and it's unusual in the world today it's a great blessing but it's one that will not last be thankful for it while we have it but don't be surprised See, come down to verse 9 Come down to the point. He who has an ear, let him hear, which ought to remind us of the letters to the churches, by the way. That, that was time and time again in there. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This is the nature of the world that we currently live in. God is not going to miraculously deliver you here and now from the suffering that the beast under the dragon will bring. Rather, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. And don't be surprised when it happens. When the powerful around you mock you, put barriers in your way, outright harm you because of your faith. Because you will not bow before the beast. Rather, stand, endure be patient and trust God. Well, that's, not, that's not what the word faithfulness means. It's, it's a very, sounds a bit religious, doesn't it? Be faithful. It just means trust. Trust. The victory has been won. The beast will be overthrown. Now, if the first beast is world government, and by the way, I'm happy to talk more about it, right? If, if you've got a better idea, I'd love to hear it, but it seems to work. The second beast, I wonder if it isn't world religion. If the first beast was world government, the second beast, well, look at what the second beast looks like. Verse 11, I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb. 
but he spoke like a dragon. So the first one looked like the Ancient of Days in his power and his seeming endlessness. This one looks like the Christ, the Lamb. And what is his role? What is he doing? Come down to verse 13. He performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword. He was given power to give breath to the image of the firstborn, so that it would speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Dedicated to worship with great signs and wonders. Friends, be very wary of signs and wonders. In particular, be very wary of the wonder of signs. To see things that are seemingly miraculous and think, well, this must be the way. For the beast, by the power of the dragon, can do that too. Even to the point of causing an idol to speak. That's something quite unique. I mean, throughout the whole Bible, time and again, idols are laughed at because they cannot speak. Why would you worship something dumb when you have the living God who speaks his word into your life? This one makes an idol that looks amazing. Be wary of signs and wonders. Be wary of religious movements that would say to you, come to us, look at what we have, look at the power that we wield. If it is separated from the word of God, then you know where it's come from. It leads into idolatry. The worship of an image, the worshipping of something other than God. Something that has the appearance of God, but in the end is a minion of Satan himself. See, how is it that Satan is at work? Well, he has power through government, through organizations. He has power through religious bodies. You just think about the effect of all the false religions in the world for a moment. What is there, a billion Muslims these days? That's a lot of people worshipping an idol. But you know what? It's not even out there. I mean, it's very easy to point the finger out there somewhere, isn't it? What's happening within so-called Christian churches today who are getting caught up with signs and wonders at the expense of the word of God? No, this second beast has great power. And look what he does with that power. Come to verse 16. He forces everyone, small, great, rich, poor, free and slave, to receive the mark. So that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the number of the beast, the number of his name. Marked with the number. Now look, let's just take the tinfoil hats off for a moment, okay? This is probably not talking about RFID chips or credit cards or barcodes or, or chips under your skin or your email address, I heard one person say once, or your tax file number. Okay, it's not talking about any of those sorts of things. It's a picture, remember? It's the, this is the influence that religion can wield. If you are not in with the priest, good luck getting a job. If you are not in with the imam, well, you're not getting married. In fact, it gets even worse, right? You start talking about state religion. You start talking about the two beasts combined, the government and the religion operating in tandem, and man, it gets bad. No, what we are called to is not conspiracies, but to wisdom. Look at verse 18. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number, which is a really, really weird sentence. Because the next sentence, he tells you the number. If you have insight, calculate it. All right, 666. <laughs> ah! It's like, all right, I'm going to do a math question. What's two plus two, four? Ha! Right, well done, everyone. Yeah, like... See, the wisdom isn't to try and find the right conspiracy and to work out what the... No, the wisdom is to see the false religion for what it is. To see that which tries to be God, tries to have perfect three sevens. Wow! No, it falls just short. To see through it for its lies. To see through it 
that it is in the end the work of Satan himself. Be wise, lest you be led astray by the dragon. But see, there's one point left to make, which is that God's people are still his and God is still at work. Let's read chapter 14. Thanks, Wendy. we need some oil (laughs) then I looked and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 1,444,000 had his name his father's name written on their foreheads and I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of the rushing waters and like the loud peal of thunder the sound I heard was like that of the harpists playing their harps and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders Now one could learn a song except for the 1,444,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. (laughs) Thanks, Ma. (laughs) These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They followed the Lamb wherever he goes. He was... They were purchased from among the men and offered as first fruits of God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They were blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said to the loud voice, For fear, of, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen in Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of the, her adulterers. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast of his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torments rises for ever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image, for anyone who receives the mark of his name. He calls for patient endurance on the parts of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest with their labours from their deeds will follow them. I looked and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was like was one like the Son of Man, with a crown of gold in his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called to the loud voice to him who was sitting in the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap it has come. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he was seated on the cloud, swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too was, had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge over the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp, sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine. Because its grapes are ripe, the angel swung its sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles in the distance of 1,600 stettles, which is 300 kilometres. I hope you're not scared. I mean, this picture of the dragon roaming the earth, his fury being poured out, working through the large and the small, you can't escape. But I hope you're not scared because here is the truth that we come to time and time and time again in Revelation. There's always this pause in the middle of all that's happening and we are reminded that God's people are his. Remember, you are God's. Remember, you are 
God's. You belong to him. In fact, you've been marked as his. I mean, back in 13.8, everyone's going to worship the beast except those whose lives have been written in the book since the beginning. Or over in chapter 14, verse 1, I looked and there they were, the 144,000 who had the lamb's name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Marked gods, which by the way, I've never seen a conspiracy theory about that one. There's a conspiracy theory about the 666, watch this number, but I've never heard someone trying to work out, well, okay, what's God's mark? We've got to go and find the people who have like, I, I don't know, is it, you listen to Colin Buchanan or something. I, I don't know what the mark is of God's people. You belong to God. You remember that in this whole thing, in this whole contest, Satan has zero power before God. That summary of the gospel, the great battle between the dragon and the child, and there was no battle. The child simply sat on his throne. Satan defeated. That is the one who is for us. That is the one to whom you belong. And it really matters that we remember that because we must have confidence in our God that his work continues. It's not as if Satan is somehow impeding God from doing what he wants to. No, God's work continues and his work has two parts, his work of judgment and his work of salvation. Look at verse 9. The third angel follows them and says in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image. Gee, that's serious. It puts frivolities in their place, doesn't it? This is the end for any who will worship the beast. This is the end for any who are found in a God other than the Ancient of Days and his son Jesus Christ. Is it right to get scared into heaven? Well, it's not wrong. It's not wrong to want to fear and flee from this punishment. If anything, that ought to give us another reason to persevere because you know what will happen if you don't. Come down to verse 19. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city. Blood flowed, rising as high as a horse's bridle for a distance. That's my height from here to Port Macquarie. Blood. God's work of judgment is even now being carried out and will one day come to an end. But so is God's work of salvation. Come to verse 6. I saw another angel flying and he had... The eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God, give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea and the springs of water. The, the eternal gospel is even now going out. We, we had an Egyptian guy join us at 8 o'clock today. Just wandered in, comes from ESL. Right? We have people from, from, from Russia, from Vietnam, from China, from Ethiopia, from Sri Lanka, from India, from South America, would you believe? We've had the, the, the world, the nations have joined as God's people, as the gospel has gone out, as salvation goes out into the world. God is still saving and God is still providing. Remember the woman God is still caring for his people. Don't put your trust into the, 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 uh, what is it, the emissaries of Satan. Put your trust into the Lord God Almighty. See, Satan, the worst thing that he can do, okay, I'm, I'm going to prepare you now. The single worst thing he can do to you is kill you. You know, that's pretty bad. I, mean, I, I don't know, David. But that's it. He can make you suffer. He can. And he probably will. At some point in your life, it's going to happen. 
What we are called to do is to trust in our God, to hold. See, why do God's people suffer? Let's come all the way back to that question at the start. The answer is complex, but at least in part, it is because Satan, kicked out of heaven by the ascended Lord Jesus, powerless, is now roaming the earth in his fury because he knows his time is short. So what ought we to do? Well, if you are currently experiencing the suffering that he brings, then endure. Have patience, trust, hold to the testimony of Jesus. See, even now you can know for sure that God is bringing his judgment upon the dragon. And he is bringing his judgment upon the beast. And he is bringing and he will bring his judgment upon all those who oppose him. And in your sadness and in your grief, remember that the kingdom of our God has come. A kingdom which when we see its culmination will involve no tears, no suffering, no pain. That will be done. If you're not suffering right now, then I want to tell you, be wise. Be wise to spot the fakes. Don't be fooled. Don't be led astray by the beasts. Don't seek salvation in the kingdom of God in politics or in religion for that matter. Seek it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be fooled. Don't be easily tempted. It's the danger of the lukewarm church. Remember the churches back from chapters 1 and 2? I think it's the real danger of the lukewarm church is that firstly, you don't care. You don't care enough. And so when temptation comes, you don't care enough about the Lord Jesus and the temptation seems awfully pretty. And so you're led astray. You don't care enough about the Lord Jesus. So when the pressure of persecution comes, you have nothing to hold on to. So you give up. Could you say of yourself that your whole heart and soul and mind, that your life and your livelihood and all that you are is dedicated to the Lord God Almighty? To love of him, to service of his people, to his work of salvation as the eternal gospel goes out. Can you say that of yourself? And thirdly, if you find today that you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you haven't trusted in him, then whether you know it or not, you are worshipping Satan. Now, maybe not directly, but you are. And the outcome is that in the end, when the judgment falls finally, you will be found to be one of his. And this is a judgment that you must escape. And you must do so today. Come and find the Lord Jesus. And find the hope that whatever comes in this life, you are his and he is yours. And eternity will belong to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Revelation 12, 13, 14. We thank you for this picture, the reality that you have shown us. We thank you for the encouragement, the strength, the wisdom that you give us. Strengthen those who are suffering. Give wisdom to those who need it and who are being fooled. That we may, Father, with the Lord Jesus Christ, know his victory, his power and his kingdom. We might be yours forever. We ask this to your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen.